In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. If you were like me, perhaps Lent has seemed especially long this year. I don't know why specifically, but I find myself wanting to jump right into Easter morning, skipping past all the serious contemplation and lament that this liturgical season calls for, and I'd love to get right into that fully realized reality and redemption that Eastertide brings. Fortunately, or depending on my mood, unfortunately, this is simply not an option. (laughs) These changes in season, both liturgical and otherwise take time, which ultimately is a good thing because it helps us reorient ourselves to God's story of redemption. Now, just reflecting on the changes happening outside in creation around us, it is plain to see that time and patience are necessary components to change. Today's texts also serve as a reminder that in our lives too, time and patience are required to bring about godly change. Except that when we're talking about our lives, it's God's timing and our patience, which, if we're talking honestly here, do not always work together the way that we want them to. In our reading from Isaiah this morning, we are set back into a time where Judah is under imminent threat from outside kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen, and the southern kingdom of Judah's time is about to come. The Lord does not sugarcoat what the costs of their rebellion against him will be. Isaiah's message from God is deeply uneasy to hear. I can only imagine what hearing those words at that time must have felt like. Mercifully, God is not interested in the destruction of his people. Discipline? Yes. Destruction? No. And so he gives Isaiah and the people glimpses of what life will look like once he's dealt with all of this sin and rebellion. And God and his people are once again united, and they can live together once more. This portion of Isaiah 43 that we heard today is using language that is very, very reminiscent of the Exodus, where God led his people from slavery to new life of freedom against all earthly odds. Listen again. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, you should be thinking Red Sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished. They are quenched like a wick. You should be hearing Red Sea. You should be thinking Egypt's army coming after the people of God. And and what's described here, what's referenced here, is a supernatural defeat of Israel's enemies. God dealt with the whole might of Egypt's impressive army with the same amount of effort as blowing out a candle. One puff, one breath, and they were done. Such is God's power. But the text continues. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, essentially, God reminds his people who he is. He's the God who saved them. But then he starts to paint a new picture of what is to come. Um, 
to paraphrase in my own words here, God is saying something like, remember who I am? Remember what I've done for you? Good. Now let it go and watch me work. Why does he say this? Why? Now, John Oswald, in his commentary on Isaiah, puts it like this. For Israel, the glorious saving events of the past, with all of their details, had become a straitjacket into which every other act of God was forced. As a result, Israelites were frequently unable to recognize God's new actions when they came. We humans are inveterate idolaters. We turn everything into a fetish if we are allowed to. The point Oswald is making here is that while the nature of God is constant and unchanging, his methods for interacting with and working through people are not. This was a difficult concept for God's people to understand. It became a stumbling block for them in Isaiah's time, and now it can even be a stumbling block for us too. Yes, God parted an actual sea to provide his people with an escape route from the Egyptians, but in Isaiah's time, he would not be doing anything of the sort with the invading Assyrian army. This is a different chapter of the ongoing story of God's people. And while the promise of redemption remains, the situation has changed. Woe to his people who could not see it, because they were so caught up in what they thought that God would, or perhaps should, do for them. So what is this new thing that God is doing? God is creating new life itself within us. Redemption for his people, a new righteous pathway through our ever-changing wilderness that leads us straight back to him, where we were supposed to be all along. As impossible as it is for us to find our way back to God when we have strayed, we, the lost sheep, are being sought out and called back into the fold by our shepherd, who creates a way home, even going so far as to create a new path when we could find none. This is a taste of the kingdom to come. Interestingly, Psalm 126 also parallels themes of exile, return, and restoration. It goes back and forth between praising the work that God has done for his people historically and praying for God to do something similar once again. The first three verses speak from a past tense. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then our mouths were filled with laughter. The Lord has done great things for us. But the last three verses are spoken from the present tense. These verses are a turning point into the psalm from being one of praise into one of petition. And they're asking essentially for restoration. A sense of godly lament permeates the page as the people who remember who God is ask him to show up for them once again. Here is the humility and longing for God that the people in Isaiah's time had forgotten. It is a beautiful prayer. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sorrow, for sowing, sorry, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. 
Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Please, let this be so, God. You can hear the built-in relief that comes from trusting in God to care for us and to take care of things that we cannot do for ourselves. God is at work for us. So the question is this. What have you been sowing this Lent? What do you need God to restore in your life? What seems lifeless, dry like a desert, perhaps, in your soul? Are you tired of waiting for something that doesn't seem to be happening? Does it seem hopeless? Maybe impossible. Maybe you can't even work up the desire to have a renewed relationship with God. Not to worry. No matter what answer you have given in your heart just now, know this. This is exactly the sort of work that our Lord specializes in. He is all about the restoration business. Just like a desert that gets transformed into lush blooms with a gift of rain, or the ground that gradually thaws from cold, hard dormancy into once again being soft and hospitable to life, that is the transformative healing work that God longs to do within us and for us. He longs to turn our sorrow into joy, our detached ambivalence into warm engagement once more. But this holy transformation comes at a cost. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks about having suffered the loss of all things in order to gain Christ. In verse 8, Yes, God does promise to restore us, to provide a new righteous way to live, and to once again be in communion with us. That is no small thing. But first, we must die to ourselves. Like a seed that is buried in the ground and must die in order for a new plant to grow, so too must we die to ourselves and all that this world has to offer. And let's be clear. The cost is high. It will cost you everything that you have, every semblance of control, every selfish desire you have. All of it has to be given up in order to have Christ and to become like him. It's rather hard to pick up your cross and follow him when you're clutching onto privilege, self-reliance, power, or things that you think you have earned for yourself. You cannot have both. You have to let them all go. I think that is why Paul speaks about suffering and redemption going hand in hand. It is an ongoing, lifelong process that we will need God's supernatural, sustaining power to carry us through. It's not easily or painless process, but it is one that we all must submit ourselves to and trust for God, the master gardener, to attend to. This is the new thing that God is doing. This is the new thing promised for in Isaiah 43. And it all comes back to God's timing and our patience, like I mentioned right in the beginning. Remember, Lent is a season of longing and of waiting, and waiting will require our patience. Even simply in being patient for God to be about his work within me, I need his help. I can't even do that this Lent. I can't even be patient. 
So with what's remaining of Lent, I encourage us all, don't give in to the temptation of tuning out or trying to numb whatever sorrows you may be feeling or the pain of new growth you may be experiencing or perhaps even the deep longing for something better yet to come. Instead of tuning out, tune into that. Let us try to sit with our pain, our vulnerabilities, our sorrows, our desires, our impatience, and wait for the man of sorrows himself to attend to us in his good timing. Easter morn is certainly coming, but it's not here yet. I'll close with these words from Hosea 6.3. So let us know and press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain. Like the spring rain that waters the earth. He is coming. Be patient. Amen. Amen.